four tonight. Uh, really, uh, five is chapter five is where uh, he gets into the rebuke of Israel. Uh, it's interesting that chapter four kind of lays out the case of God, and, and we're speaking almost directly. He makes no mention here <coughs> of, of uh, Hosea and Gomer. So, so Hosea's life is still unfolding. Uh, I think many of the experiences uh, of Hosea in his efforts to love Gomer uh, were reflective of God's love for his people and how they had spurned him and the challenges involved in loving Israel. Um, so in chapter 4, it kind of moves away from that, that analogy that's being laid out there, and it comes more directly to, prop the, to the Hosea's uh, indictment, as it were, is, of Israel, uh, as, God gives him, <clears throat> as God gives him those words. So let's read. Uh, it's lengthy, but I want to read all 19 verses of chapter 4, and then we'll come back and uh, just make a few comments. But he begins, listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel. For the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing and deception and murder and stealing and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore, the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beast of the field and the birds of the sky, and also the fish of the sea disappear. Yet let no one find fault, and let none offer reproof, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge." Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being my priest. I think he means there the people of Israel as the priest of God. Since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire towards their iniquity. And it will be like people, like priests. So I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They will eat, but not have enough. They will play the harlot, but not increase, because they have stopped giving heed to the Lord. Harlotry and wine and new wine take away the understanding. And my people consult their wooden idol and their diviner's wand and forms them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of mountains and burn incense on the hills under oak, poplar, and tebranth because their shade is pleasant. Therefore, your daughters play the harlot and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot or your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes. So the people without understanding are ruined. Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Also do not go to Gilgal or go up to Beth-Avon and take the oath as the Lord lives. Since Israel is stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols. Let him alone. Their liquor gone. They play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. And the wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. A pretty severe uh, indictment uh, 
from God against his people Israel through the prophet Hosea. Uh, it was interesting to me, but uh, he gets into chapter 5 in the rebuke. Uh, but in this particular chapter, the basic indictment was fairly brief. In fact, I would call it a summary indictment, indictment of his people. You see it in verse 1 and 2. Uh, two things or three things really involved there. Number one is verse two, verse one, there is no faithfulness. Number two, there's no kindness. And then number three, there's no knowledge of God. And so that's the basic indictment. And I thought about what he goes on to describe here. And you could really, you could really see the description and say, this is, this is, this is consistent with a nation or a people who have left off these things. In other words, where there is a nation that there is no faithfulness, nor kindness, nor knowledge of God, this is what it looks like. This is what they become. And I was really struck as I was reading this passage of how, how I would describe or the descriptive I would use for our nation, and in some ways our world today, is very much like this indictment God sends to Israel against his own people. As I was reading through that, maybe you thought that sounds familiar. And we become like that in many ways. So there is no faithfulness. First of all, I think he means there the absence of faith in God in general, but also no faithfulness in doing the things that they were commanded to do by God. They were his chosen people uh, from, the very, from the very beginning of his calling them through Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. God chose a people and he began to reveal himself to these people they had Paul even talks about the great advantage of the Jew and that they have the law and the and the oracles and the ordinances and so they have a huge advantage these were to be God's special people and through their faithfulness they were to be testifying to the world of the God of Israel and that was their role so he says Part of the indictment here is that they were no longer fulfilling the role for which God called them out and made them a people unto himself. They were, there was no faithfulness in the land. So you can't read what he says later without attaching it to the absence of faithfulness. <clears throat> and if you think about that in terms of our nation and in the world today, the more, the more we depart or move away from the purpose for our being, the more we descend into the, the pits, as it were, of sin. And so Israel was doing the same thing. So the indictment number one, no faithfulness in the land. Indictment number two, no kindness. I think that follows faithfulness. I mean, what is faithfulness in Israel but their recognition that they were as much a heathen nation as any other people? And that God chose a people out of the heathen nations, brought Abraham out from Ur of the Chaldees where he was an idolater and brought him to himself and revealed him to himself. What, what should have produced in the faithful, what the mercy of God should have been producing in the faithful was their mercy towards other people, other peoples, especially their own countrymen. But what happens when there's no faithfulness, mercy's withdrawn. And there's no kindness in the land. People become literally brutal to one another. Uh, later on, he makes a comment, and I'll get to this, but he says, it was an interesting phrasing, but he says they employ murder. He don't just say they're murderers, they employ it. 
And that's the result of faithlessness in a land. When people abandon God and they go to themselves, they neglect and reject the mercy of God to themselves. And having not being mindful of his mercy towards them, they therefore become less merciful towards others. And as time progresses and distance from God increases, they become more merciless until the point they become absolutely cruel. Indictment number two, in Israel there is no kindness. They are not faithful anymore. And because of that, they have lost sight of my mercy towards them. And now they are merciless towards others. And kindness has gone away. And the root of all of that, or the product, you might say both, but the product of all that certainly is indictment number three. There is no knowledge of God in the land. That is a dreadful, dreadful indictment. They are faithless. And in their long faithless, faithlessness, they moved farther away from God. And in their mercilessness, they lost sight of the knowledge of God to the point now that they can no longer, they no longer know it. Therefore, they can't communicate it. Therefore, they can't bring up their children and the rest of the generations in the fear and admonition of God. There is no knowledge of God in the land. This is exactly what produces the nation that he's getting ready to describe here. And so as we look through those, I just want all of us to be thinking in terms of how did they get there? This is God's people that, that were recipients of the tremendous blessing of the sovereign grace of God and calling them out of all the multitudes on the earth and calling them to be his special people. That, with that great advantage, they abandoned all of that and they quickly became all that we're going to describe here. And I think for application point, do you think we're any different as America? I mean, this is a nation that I think has the blessing of God upon it. Nothing like this in all the world. A, a, a republic, a, a representative government where the people rule by their representatives. There's nothing like this in all the world. I remember thinking years ago when I heard some conversation about importing democracy to the nations around the world. And I remember thinking, even as a young Christian, that ain't going to work. It's not going to work because they're not going to operate in that democracy, American-style democracy, from a Christian moral foundation. And that's the very heart of, this, of, of our constitutional republic. Erase God and it falls apart because then freedom becomes every man pursuing that which is right in his own eyes. So it won't work to export American democracy into countries that don't have a right view of God and the moral foundation and a biblical worldview. And it'll deteriorate into exactly what we see in Israel. And I, my heart goes out to to every preacher and every Christian in our country, we need to be in earnest prayer because we are a nation that has become faithless and kindness is departing us quickly. And it seems to me as though the knowledge of God is becoming more and more a rarity, even among those who would profess the name of Christ. And so if it's already observable in America that we're fulfilling these three summary indictments of God against his own people Israel, is America therefore going to be immune to becoming the same kind of nation that Israel had become? I think the answer is no. We're not going to be immune to that. We are fleshly people 
And we will decline and deteriorate into the, into the fullness of the lust of the flesh without the grace of God just as quickly as Israel did or any other nation. So that's the indictment. Notice that he says when he talks about no knowledge of God, look how this manifested itself. Verse 2. He says there, there is swearing. And think of these descriptions in our nation today. I don't think he means just cursing. Uh, surely they were doing that. There would be no reverence in their mouths to where they would be blaspheming God. But they are also swearing oaths uh, deceptively. They are swearing allegiance to false gods. So there is swearing. There is deception. You ever seen a nation more more corrupted by the deception from the top of our government all the way down to the next door neighbor. I mean, it is deception everywhere. The media deceives us constantly. I mean, it's, we are a nation saturated with deception. We profit from deception. And that's exactly what manifested in Israel's life. There is murder. Absolutely, there is murder. Look at our nation today. Murder, murder rates on the rise. I was watching a video or a documentary last night, and it was about Japan. And there is a forest in Japan. They are such a driven society, success-oriented. They would, they would literally have to close factories at 10 and make them go home because they would work through the night because they're all trying to achieve. And they're all wearing $2,500 Rolexes and they have to provide for those lifestyles. And it's such a demanding society that there is a forest there in some nature preserve. And they call it literally in the Japanese, but the English translation was suicide forest. And when these young Japanese uh, men and, and women are so overwhelmed and they can't live up to the expectations and they become so despairing, they go out into this national park in this suicide forest and they find bodies. And occasionally they have task force that go out and go through the park to make sure there are no dead bodies laying around where they went there to take their own lives. In fact, this place is number two for suicides globally. And you know what the number one site for suicides is globally? The Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, we are, we are despairing as a people, as a, as a world, as we move away from God. And these are indications or symptoms of that. Swearing and deception and murder abound. The, the value of life has bottomed out. And now the people are being killed for the smallest things, disputes over a gas pump or some, some shoplifting, some 30, 30 cent item in a convenience store and getting a shootout and people are dying. These were indicative of Israel's departure from God. Are they not also indicative of America's departure? There is stealing and Adultery, this unfaithfulness, oaths and covenants mean nothing, mean nothing in the world anymore. I remember as a kid, I saw farmers make all kinds of deals and they would swap this for that and they would let, let one farmer use us to get their crops in and they would turn in turn let, let us use their hands to get ours in and different things. And I never once seen anybody write out a contract and sign it and get a lawyer. My guys will be over at your farm next Sunday or next Monday morning at 8 o'clock. And yes, sir, see them then. 
And it was a handshake and a man's word meant something. You didn't have to sign something everywhere you went. But where can you go today and uh, uh, make any sort of deal whatsoever on your word? I don't even know if they give personal loans anymore uh, on your word. You've got to have something to collateral. So the words mean nothing. There is stealing and there is adultery, not honoring our covenants, particularly their marriage covenants, because they were going outside their marriages to the temple prostitutes. Men and women were doing this. And then this phrase, they employ violence. I was just so rocked by that phrasing. Because he could have said they're stealing, they're adulterers, they're murderers. And it would have had, to, it had a great impact. This is what the people become when they depart away from God. But he said they employ murder. And, and what that struck me as is murder for them becomes an instrument to a greater gain. It's just a tool. It's not, it's not a crime. It's just one of the things they employ in the pursuit of satisfying their own lust and desires. If I desire wealth and you have it, and I don't, and you're the obstacle to my getting yours, I'll employ murder and take what you've got. Employing murder. That's just a striking way for the prophet to phrase that, for God to move him to profit that. That's Israel. They were employing murder, even to the point of murder. They deceive, they steal, they lie, they deceive, they do everything they can to get over on one another. And if that's not effective enough, they will employ murder just like they employed theft and adultery and deception and every other sinful instrument to accomplish what they desired. This, is, this was the nation of Israel. He says there, Bloodshed then, once they employ this violence, bloodshed follows bloodshed. The escalation starts to happen. <clears throat> I'm convinced that, that the devaluing of life we see in the, the generations that have been born in this world since Roe v. Wade, uh, I, I'm, con I'm convinced that the devaluing of life in those successive generations is directly related, uh, directly connected to our devaluing of life and that decision. And every, every generation rises and devalues life more and more, and it's a symptom of that generation that produced them that devalued life in the womb and said it's okay to put it to death. And I think it's a consequence. We're living in a violent generation. I was telling someone not long ago that somewhere along the way, I'm afraid that these young people that are growing up in a society that devalues life so much are going to be so miserable in the world that we've created that there's going to be a backlash and it's going to be violent against those who gave them that sort of country. And that means in some ways us. Because somewhere along the way, they're going to wise up and hold us accountable for the misery that they're enduring. And so was the world in Israel. What's striking about this is Hosea prophesied early on uh, in Israel. And they were still very prosperous at this time. In fact, Jeroboam II expanded the kingdom almost to the borders that Solomon had it. So they're a successful nation. So you can imagine what a shock this must have been for Hosea to be saying and bringing these indictments against the people of Israel. How could not God not be blessing us? Look at us. We're at our most prosperous ever. And Hosea is saying in essence, and, that you, and you are at your most wicked. While you're prospering, you have grown 
your most wicked. And he's bringing this indictment. So I want to just look in verses 3, really through 19. And there are a lot of these, and I may not get through these, but these are evidences. Like I said, his rebuke is coming in chapter 5. And even, and even his counseled response to that rebuke in chapter 6. But in chapter 4, he's just laying out the case. It's, all, it's as though he's, a, he's an attorney and he comes into the court, the defendant's seated, and he says, here's the summary of our case. So-and-so is a faithless, without kindness, and no knowledge of God. And then he goes to these, he's, uh, he swears and he's deceptive and murderous and stealing and he's adulterer, he's violent and he commits bloodshed. That's the summary indictment. Now let me lay out the proofs and the evidences of how corrupted he has become. And that's exactly what he does beginning in verse 3. The very, very first one is the land, therefore because of this, the land mourns. The whole land mourns. Think about the description of that. The corruption gets to the point where there's not an island somewhere. There's not a sanctuary. There's not a place that you can go. The corruption has affected the whole of the land of Israel. We can't escape this. You are living in a land that is grieving under the weightiness of your own corruption. The land itself is weeping or grieving and mourning. You remember Paul talks about the creation in the New Testament groaning under the weight, under the hope of its, of its uh, deliverance, its redemption someday. And God restores creation itself because it's bearing the weight of the curse of sin even in this world. And you think about all the land itself and, and it how graphic that is that our corruption would somehow leak over into the inanimate objects would be grieving and mourning as it were metaphorically because of the weightiness of our sin and practically speaking as well because the, the pursuit of wealth often has resulted in the destruction of the environment that we live in, the disregard and the lack of stewardship for the things of God, the God's creation. We destroy the very environment we live in in pursuit of our prophets in so many ways. In our generation, it seems as though we're willing to destroy man himself uh, in the pursuit of some goals at times. And so the land mourns. Notice he says as well, everyone who lives in it. So not only does the land as a whole grieve and mourn because of your corruption, but everybody living in the land is languishing. I have the, has the imagery of, of yearning without, without hope of satisfying the yearning. They, they're empty and they know they're empty and they, they don't see anything in sight that can bring fulfillment. The, everybody in the grieving land is languishing out there. They're reaching for straws and struggling. Have you ever seen a more emotionally distraught America than in our day today? I mean, the, the, the medications and the pharmaceuticals directed towards getting us in a good mood have to be astronomical because we're languishing. We are a people languishing. Nothing satisfies. If we get one thing, we want the next thing. If we want that thing, we get the next thing. And we're empty because the, we've forsaken God and we've moved away from God and the land itself is 
bearing up under the weight of our increasing sinfulness and we're losing hope and languishing as a people. There are so many people. Pull this up sometimes, but type in to your search bar, Kensington, Philadelphia. And, and look at the people wandering the streets in convulsions and almost as frozen in time that are on these drugs. And it's, it's block after block through Kensington, Philadelphia. It's become a, a place where journalists come from all over the world to view the zombies in Philadelphia and Kensington. Drugs and people languishing without hope in a world that's holding and bearing the weightiness of a sinful nation. That's Israel. That's his indictment of Israel. These are the evidences that these people have moved away from God and they have forgotten God and they are no faithfulness. So the land languishes. Notice in verse uh, 3 as well, he says, Along, not only to everyone who lives in it, but along with the beast of the field and the birds of the sky and also the fish of the sea disappear. I mean, our sinfulness is having an effect on the land, on everybody living in the land, and every beast, bird, and fowl, and fish on the globe. It, it, ha, it, it is affected by the weightiness of a people who move away from God. The fish are running out. We have all sorts of regulations because I think today we could fish out the oceans. We could deplete the stocks in the ocean. So there's regulations, some just, some probably unjust. I don't know. But, but, the, but it's like even the provision God has put into the world, animals and plants and everything else is, is languishing as well under the weightiness of a world that's departed from God. In verse 4, Another evidence is that he gives here is they become tolerant, even endorsing of sin. Endorsing, I say, by their silence. He says, he kind of rhetorically here says, it's like this, but don't let anybody find any fault or don't anybody offer any reproof. That's what he's saying here. That's rhetorical. How dare anybody do that? No one dares do that. So by their silence, they are actually endorsing the sinfulness that's producing this grieving and mourning land and a languishing people, man, beast, and, and fowl, and fish. So we're living in this miserable world that we're produced by going away from God, but don't you dare say anything about that. Don't you dare call it out. That's exactly what Hosea is doing, but the people don't want to hear that. Because that would require an adjustment on their part. And they're not willing to do that. There's no knowledge of God. They've moved away from God. And now they're living in the squalor of the misery that's been produced by their sin and by their faithlessness. And then don't you dare come to them and say, look, I know the source of your problem. You've departed from God. And so what that's produced in this sinful generation, which again is a evidence of their guilt, is that they have become tolerant now of their own sin. And by their silence and speaking out against those things, they have become, begun to endorse the very sins that are producing their own misery. Man, is it any more descriptive of our land today? I mean, people are miserable under the weightiness of their sins. But you let some preacher or somebody get on a national airway somewhere and start pointing back to God and say, look, the root of our suffering and the root of our confusion and mayhem and chaos in this world is because as a nation, we have departed from the God whom our forefathers 
believed in as they founded this nation. And what do you get labeled as? Extremist. A radical. Did you hear, by the way, this week, I don't want to get too much into the politics, but I heard a commentator or a, a, a post of a commentator on a, on a report uh, in regards to the Iowa caucus. But they, they were making the, per, the point that evangelical evangelicalism was filled with white supremacists. All of them. And, and that's, why, that's why the results in Iowa were what they were, because there was such a heavy evangelical vote, and they're all there, they're all white supremacists. In fact, all those white evangelical men, they said in specifically, they believe that God gave them the nation, and they don't like anybody that isn't like them. <laughs> that's not the problem. <laughs> that is not the problem. The problem is that we are a nation that has moved away from God. And if you confront them with that as the source, they will, they will assign you a place with those. You are the white evangelical. And let me say something. This generation says you're the problem. You're the problem. That's exactly what Israel was here. That's what he's saying. He's saying to Israel, all these things are happening. The land is, langui- the land is mourning. You are languishing. Bird, beast, fowl, and fish are all dying away. You are living in a miserable squalor that your sin produced. But don't you dare let anybody tell you that. That's exactly an evidence of how far away from God they had gone. So the people began to be tolerant and endorse sin by their silence. In verse 5, This was interesting as well that the next two or verse five period. But one of the indications here of their having departed from God and their guilt here is that the people stumbled even in the daylight. Notice that. So he says you will stumble by day. And then he goes further. This is what was really enlightening. But he goes further and says, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night. And I thought you've gone so far away from God now that you're stumbling in daylight. Daylight's when you don't stumble. You see things, right? When the, when the sun's shining, you're not likely to trip over anything. All of us can stumble in the dark. I do it all the time. It's, you're more likely to stumble in the dark, but in the daylight is when you're supposed to be able to see things and you shouldn't be stumbling. He said the result of your sin and your departure from God is you're stumbling around when you still have light. There's a prophet right here speaking to these people. There is light shining and what are you doing? You're stumbling over it. The prophets come to you and they give you the word of God. And what have you been doing? You've been stumbling over that. While the light is shining and you still have life and you're prospering as a nation, while the light's shining, you're stumbling all over yourselves every single day. And that's an indictment. And that's that's an evidence of your guilt and of your having moved away from God. You're blind to the light in the broad daylight. When the light is shining. Remember Jesus says walk while you have the light. For a time's coming when the light will be taken away from you. They had all kinds of light. They had the prophets down through the ages coming to them. They had their entire history. They had the law of God. They had light but they were stumbling even as the light was shining. And even worse is the second part. When it gets dark and you really do need uh, help. The prophets that you would turn to in the darkness for the help, they're stumbling with you. And I think he means here their priests or their religious leaders. 
When it gets dark and you turn to religious people, they're all, they've all been deceived by this time because they've been living in the same darkness you have. And they have no counsel for you. And they, along with you, will stumble when it gets dark. You think about that for a minute. What about the church in America? When this world and when our nation gets so dark that people in their misery finally start looking away from this worldly things and they turn to their religious leaders who traditionally have been able to give insight and hope in times of crisis and they turn to them and when they get counsel from them, they are as darkened as those people that are seeking the counsel. He says later on, like people, like priests. They'll stumble with you in the dark. So if America thinks we're going to go way down this road and we'll get so far when it gets really bad, then we'll come back to church, forget it. Because by then, the church will have been deceived too. And boy, we're getting close to that now. We're getting close to that now. That's God's indictment of Israel. <clears throat> the people who ought to have been able to provide for them light when it was dark to keep them from stumbling, they're going to stumble with you because they themselves have lost the light. Your priests and your religious leaders, they were, they were endorsing the idolatry as, many, as much as the rest of them. In fact, Israel itself, uh, the, the northern kingdom, began uh, by Jeroboam's planting of idols, as it were, Dan and Beersheba, uh, setting up idols for them to go worship rather than go back to Jerusalem because he was afraid that they might be won back to the southern kingdom if they were to do that. So they were a nation built in some ways upon idolatry. Verse six is, uh, verse five there at the end there was interesting as well because he says there, and I will destroy your mother. And I thought a long time about what he could mean there. And I, I think the implication here is the idea of motherhood in general. And I, and I say that because one of the things that goes away quickly in a society moving away from God are things that a mother nurtures her children and really provides for society in some ways nurturing and caring and compassion and tenderness. You, you obliterate the mother and she, she can't transfer that to a society. So it has gone so corrupt, he says, that motherhood has lost its influence in society. Now you can't produce tender and compassionate and nurturing children. They're deprived of it in this sinful world and they can't carry it on. So you're going to raise up a generation of children who are incapable of loving other people. And that's a dangerous place to be. And look at our nation today. I mean, look at uh, a lot of our young people. It's like, <coughs> excuse me, they are <coughs> incapable, almost incapable of feeling compassion or affection for someone else. Everybody seems to be an instrument that they can use to further their own gains. And see, these are evidences of a nation that's departed from God. They were evidences in Israel. In fact, when I thought about that statement, I thought, I thought as though the prophet is saying, it's going to get worse and worse. Because not only are you a corrupt society now having departed from God, now you're losing the very institutions which produced or propagated this moral foundation that you've been living on. There's no one going to be doing that. The fathers are gone and motherhood will be destroyed. The mothers will be destroyed. And now you've got heartless a heartless generation. Go to the New Testament and read about Paul's description of those in the end time. Uh, haters 
lovers of self, disobedient to parents. I mean, that generation that comes to the scene in those end days is a ruthless, heartless generation. Where do they come from? They, they're the product of a nation who has departed from God. And that's the children that they'll be bearing. And those children, by the way, I think they are going to be some kind of hard. I'm talking about emotional rocks. They, they will be impenetrable. You, can, you will not be able to appeal to some merciful inclination in them. They, are, they will be stone cold, hostile, and ruthless. That's the description of that generation that comes on the scene at the end time. Well, do they just show up? No. They will be the product of a nation moving away from God. One generation after the next, after the next, after the next. And they'll keep producing those children and, and bringing them up away from God and departing from God. And they will produce that generation. It won't come on the scene overnight. It'll be a generation that has progressed to that level of hardness and ruthlessness. And then you'll know you're in the end times. Already here, God's saying that's evident in his own generation in Israel's life. In verse 6, it says there, they reject knowledge. That'll be another, another indication. I, and I think he means the, the ideal here of truth. They reject knowledge or moral absolutes. You see that in verse, uh, verse 6. My people are destroyed for this lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being my priest. His people, I think he means, since you have forgotten the law of God, I will also forget your children. So they're rejecting knowledge. They're doing away with truth and moral absolutes. What have we been doing in America for generations? We've been trying to convince kids that truth is relative, that there are no moral absolutes. Sometimes it's okay to do something that the Bible says is wrong. It's on the circumstances. We've drove that into our children's head. And now that there's no absolute truth or concepts of absolute truth or absolute morality in this world, they're set adrift. And it's, it's left up to each one to think what's the right thing to do here. And nobody can make any judgment on that because there's no absolutes. <clears throat> what happens to a nation like that? They, told, they sink into further chaos. Every man literally does that which is right in his own eyes. That's why I think he says there, because you have rejected that, I will reject you from being my people. You can't be my people and be lost in the chaotic world of no absolutes, no truth, no knowledge. And I'll forget your children too, because when you get to that place, you can't produce children. They'll have not the blessing of God upon their lives because you'll send them out in the same chaos that you're living in yourselves. They won't know whether they're coming or going. They won't be able to discern whether there's one or two or a hundred genders. They will lose sight of the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong. So in that very sense, I will forget your children because you reject this idea of knowledge, this idea of truth, this idea of absolutes. Their disregard for the knowledge of God and the law of God produces a lawless generation. Is, it, is that hard to figure out? <laughs> uh, any nation that forgets the law of God will produce a whole generation of children who are lawless. They have no boundaries. There's nothing that they won't do. And the worse society gets, the more atrocious the things they will do will become, if that's even possible. 
verse 7, they will be increasing in sin. He says, the more, this is amazing, the more they multiplied, the nation grew. The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. So you can't, you're not going to breed yourself out of this corruption. Uh, I heard a comment the other day talking about the birth rate in the U.S. and uh, as opposed to other countries and different things and how uh, Americans are having something like 1.2 children each and that's not enough to sustain our culture and all those things. And I'm thinking to myself, no, to depart from God is the way you lose the capacity to sustain a culture. I mean, they, they don't want to look at that. They want to say it's, it's the birth rate. That's the problem. We're, we're losing our culture because we're not having enough children and transferring our culture. What culture? What culture? I mean, we've lost sight of these things. And so these people, even in Israel, he says, the more you multiplied, the more you sinned. You just, you just added to your sin because you had, you had 10 children and you brought them all up away from God in a lawless environment, rejecting the knowledge of God, and they became worse sinners than you are. So the more you have babies, the more, you, the, more the land becomes even more sinful. There is, this is a, a fatal disease you have, Israel. You're not going to breed your way back to good health. You need to turn to God. That's the message that he's going to bring later. See, they're increasing sin. He says of that, he will turn their glory to shame. In verse 8, they were profiting by sin, I think is what he means here. He says, they feed, notice this second phrase, they feed on the sin of my people. So somehow the sin of the people was nourishing something in these others. And then he says, and you, they, these people, they direct, you direct their desire towards their iniquities. You're directing that. You are, you are exploiting and provoking and satisfying sinful desires in the people so that you can profit by them. What in the world are we doing today? Look at what we, what we promote and draw people to. I use for an example, I thought of the example, you've heard me say it many times, but the lottery. Uh, we exploit the greed for quick wealth. We, we, draw, we turn their desires towards their iniquities and hope to profit by it. So we'll, we'll put a lottery out there because we know all of you want to be multimillionaires without having to invest a lifetime of labor and perhaps generations of labor. So we'll put this lottery out there and who knows, maybe you'll hit the dice and you'll be the one in 165 million billion that'll ever win the thing. But all the while, we're, we're raking in the money. How many here, by the way, remember in North Carolina, do you remember the way they got the lottery passed in North Carolina to start with? What was it called? Educational lottery. All this money that's brought in will be directed to our educational system. And everybody went, well, that'll be wonderful. Is it going there now? Nope. Nope. We got rid of that really quick. We're doing exactly what Israel was doing. We are directing the desires of the people towards their iniquities, anticipating a profit. It's just like the drug dealer gets the, de the, the addict hooked and then hopes to profit by his addiction. We put before them all these sinful things and we lure them and appeal to their flesh. And when they come wanting them things, we are happy to sell it to them. We profit by directing the desires of others towards their iniquities. 
And some people are clever enough to figure out, I can provide it for them, and if they want it bad enough, they'll pay anything for it. And they get filthy rich and filthy wealthy, exploiting the sinful inclinations of their people. Israel had become like that. And it's, by the way, this is not why they're being judged. This is an indication that they have departed from God, which is why they're being judged. They abandon him. So they're profiting by sins. I know I'm out of time, but I just want to read these others. In verse 9, these are all evidences. The absence of religious leaderships and examples like priests, like people. There's no distinction now. There's no examples. There's no religious authority to turn to and to seek answers from. They're just like you. They're as much sinful as you are. They're pursuing their desires even if they're cloaking themselves with religious garb. They're still pursuing the same corrupt things you are like priests, like people. No religious examples or religious leadership. In verse 10, one of the indications that they are always lusting but never satisfied. He says there, they will eat and not have enough. They'll play the harlot, but they won't increase because they've stopped giving heed to the Lord. So that's indicative of their departure from God as well as they can't ever satisfy their lust and desires. They always think they need something more. And you've heard the old quote, they asked Rockefeller one time how much money was enough, and he said, one more dollar than I have. That's true. That's true. And one of the indications of a generation that has departed God is they can never, ever, ever be content with what they have. They're always unsatisfied. They have to have more and more and more and more because those are the, those are the means of their purchasing the things to satisfy the lust of the flesh. And they'll never be satisfied is what he says. And I think that's when crime goes up and all sorts of bad consequences follow because they can't be satisfied in their souls. And they're looking for all the ways to try to fill that void and it can't be filled with the things of this world. Verse 11, they become darkened in their understanding. He says, the harlotry wine and new wine take away their understanding and they consult their idols and all sorts of things throughout those verses there. How darkened is the understanding in this nation today? Uh, I'm, just, I, I'm just stunned sometimes at the political conversations I hear about supposedly educated, intelligent men debating subjects there that are no-brainers. I mean, ask any four-year-old or five-year-old in this sanctuary tonight, what is a woman? And you know what they'll do? They'll look around, find one, and they'll point to her and say, one of them. They didn't need a Harvard degree to do that. It's instinctive. And we have geniuses debating whether or not we can actually do that. It's indicative of a nation. These are symptoms of a nation that has moved far away from God, excluded God from everything, and is now living in the chaos and the confusion of their own sin. And they're having such ridiculous conversations. That's what I was saying earlier. I think there's a generation that's going to rebel against that chaos. They're going to want order. And somebody's going to walk on the scene who we think we call the Antichrist and he's going to provide order and peace. And they're going to embrace him wholeheartedly because we've raised a whole generation away from God and they'll, they'll hate the chaos and the confusion so much that they'll embrace the first one who comes along that can demonstrate that they can bring some order to society. 
darkened understanding, 12 through 14, they become superstitious and idolatrous. He says to their ruin, they're, they're heading to ruin and seeing evidences of it, but they will not turn away. They go and raise up their wooden idols. I love, I think it's Isaiah that makes sport of it sort of in his prophecy. They, they make this idol and cut a tree down and have a carpenter shape it into an idol and they do all this stuff and then they lift it on their shoulders and they bow down and pray to it and say, oh, thank you, idol, for providing. It was a tree. It's a tree. It didn't provide you anything. But you're carrying it around and showing adoration towards a tree. You're the one who had it cut down. I mean, yeah, maybe somebody seen it to you and you said, wow, this is a God. And you said, okay, I believe that. But you cut the tree down. You know that it was a tree. But you deceived yourself now and you are praying to the tree. That's how confused they are in idolatrous. And it's to their own ruin. We are an idolatrous people today. We don't cut trees down and shape them into idols, but oh, we stack them up everywhere, don't we? Calvin said the human heart was an idol factory. We produce them. Take it away, we'll make another one. We mass produce them. That's the human heart's inclination, and that's exactly what they were left with when they departed God. Superstition and idolatry. Verse 15 through 19 I thought were interesting as well, but let me close with this. The last symptom is utter shame. Their lives themselves become a monument to their ruin and a warning for all. Notice he enters Judah here. Verse 15, he says, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, do not let Judah become guilty. Look at your sister. See her ruin. Let her be for you a monument and a reminder that Judah, you are, no, you are no more inclined to obedience than Israel is. Your life depends upon your obedience and your yielding to your God. And if you pick up and take up the practices of Israel, you will find the end of Israel as well. He goes on to say, don't go to Gilgal or up to Bethaven or take the oath. As the, order, as the Lord lives, I'll do this or that. He says, since Israel is as stubborn like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? The obvious answer there is no, no. He says, Ephraim's joined to idols. Let them alone. Their liquor's gone and they play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. And the wind wraps them in its wings and they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So the final evidence of their departure from God is the shame that their own life apart from God brings upon them. They, they become an example to the other nations and they look on her and say, what happened to her who was so exalted by God? She departed her God and her God is holy and her God is righteous. And I, I could not help but think even in the whole of the book of Hosea, how, how relevant it is to our nation today. And I don't, we need to do our civic duty and vote for the candidate that we think most reflects in their policies, uh, the things that we believe as Christians. But let me just say this, don't put your hope in who's abiding in those seats. Those are men, and those are men Israel did that too. They went running to Egypt and they went running over here to get help. And there was no help ultimately in those. Our help 
Israel's help is in God and America's help is in God and the world's help is in God and him alone. And we are guilty as charged in many ways if we lift Isaiah's and, or Hosea's indictment against Israel and superimpose it on American life today. We are as guilty right now, I think, as Israel ever was. I think it was Billy Graham said one time that if, if God didn't judge America, he owed he owed uh, Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. He was saying that rhetorically, but he was indicating that we are as wicked as that generation that received that sort of judgment. And the fact that we are living here today and haven't been incinerated is nothing short but the mercy of God Almighty until he calls all his children home. And when that day happens, I can't even imagine what this world will be when the restraining grace of God is removed and the devil has his way with lustful hearts. This will be a wicked place. I've said for years the Holocaust will seem like child's play to what we'll come to in, as a people without God. It's a frightening time. Stand with me tonight. Father, we thank you for grace. Lord, I thank you that even though we may be living in a world such as is described here in Hosea and such as I have described, Lord, I thank you that the redeemed will be brought home. Lord, I thank you that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. It is your gift. And Father, I, I thank, I'm thankful that it is by your faithfulness and your greatness and power and, and grace that you will bring us home. You will preserve us unto the end. And Father, I pray that we might hear uh, Hosea's rebuke of Israel and recognize that to some degree, even as Christians living in a dark land like this, we can we can be shaped so easily by the darkness around us. We could be walking in pride and self-sufficiency and be oblivious to that because it's just the norm. It's just the norm. And Father, we pray for our nation, Lord, a nation just like Israel described here, a nation that has gone away from you and we've crowded you out and even the mentions made of you, even in our day today, seem to be tertiary and superficial. There is no view there's no humility there is no trembling before the god they just throw the word around as though it's some unnamed spirit floating around in the universe father i pray that you would grant grace to this nation and call us back from the brink father that you would bring conviction to our leaders and those who are making policies and father that you might silence those silence the wicked who are pressing all the time and assaulting our children and our families and our airways with perversions and corruptions of every kind. And Father, save them if need be, but Father, silence the, the wickedness. And Father, I pray that you might encourage those who have hope in Christ to speak, to speak clearly and to speak lovingly and strongly and boldly if need be and into our culture, Father, not to be mean and angry and mean-spirited and hostile and militant but to be pleading, pleading that others and that this world would turn to you. And Lord, we pray that not only to spare ourselves the sorrow that's ahead, but Father, because you are worthy of all the glory. All of creation should be glorifying you. And Father, it's a, it's a devastation that it isn't at this moment. So we pray that you'll bring that day to pass. Bless those who've come tonight, Father. Encourage them in their Christian lives. These are hard things to hear, but this is where we live. This is the world we live in. Father, thank you for grace to sustain us in such a world. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.